morning and has been wonderful. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Zechariah chapter 9. Zechariah chapter 9. I have been waiting to say that the last couple of weeks. If you know me, I, I uh, enjoy uh, preaching through uh, verse by verse through books of the Bible. And the last two weeks, of course, being January, start of the year, last, last week we celebrated the sanctity of life. And I preached a message out of Exodus chapter 1. The week before was our Vision Sunday. We always take a Sunday and we preach our vision, uh, being Joshua chapter 1, uh, being moving forward by faith. But this week, we're back in Zechariah chapter 9. And we have been in Zechariah for some time. And of course, the first eight chapters of Zechariah, we can kind of put a date on. Uh, we we kind of know it was under the reign of King Darius this has been the time of the Medes and the Persians uh, just coming out of the Babylonian captivity. And Zechariah would have been writing during the Medes and the Persians during that era. And uh, so we, we kind of know about that time. Some speculate that chapter 9 is about 50 years later than chapter 8. Uh, we can't really be sure about that, but, but we, can, we can you know say that it is some time after. What we do know in this text is... Chapters 9 uh, is, of course, about the, the first advent of our Savior, the first coming of our Savior. And then, of course, uh, the, the latter part of Zechariah's chapter 12 through 14, is the second coming of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, there had been eight visions. You can read these visions as we preach through them in the first six chapters. And then, really, uh, chapter 7 and 8 is a revelation of those visions. All of these are giving, of course, to the nation of Israel. Now, remember with me, church, uh, that, that Israel, there was 50,000 Jews that came over with Zechariah and uh, with some leaders. Uh, they came over to rebuild Jerusalem. Jerusalem had been destroyed. And so they were in captivity. They come over to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. Remember Haggai and, and uh, some of those started the temple construction. Under Zechariah in that same era, they're, they're still getting the temple rebuilt and still getting the walls under Nehemiah about 100 years later. So Jerusalem is being rebuilt. Uh, and that is, of course, God's will that they rebuild Jerusalem. And so... Um, here we are now in Zechariah chapter 9, and there is a word from the Lord that comes to Zechariah, and it's in a prophetic sense uh, that he is, he's displaying what's going to take place on some northern cities. The enemies of God, basically the enemies of Israel. Some of these cities are going to uh, be crushed. They're going to be, uh, they're going to be ravaged like Jerusalem was. And they're going to be um, uninhabited. And so, of course, Zechariah goes in and starts explaining what cities that is and who's going to be doing it. We find that in Zechariah chapter 9 and beginning in verse number 1. I want to preach with God's help this morning on our humble conqueror. Our humble conqueror. Now, let's look at verse number 1. The Bible says this, The burden of the word of the Lord in the land of Hadrach and Damascus shall be the rest thereof when the eyes of man and all the tribes of Israel shall be toward the Lord. And Amoth also shall border there by Tyrus and Sidon, though it be very wise. And Tyrus, this is the name of a city, 
did build herself a stronghold and heaped up silver and as the dust and fine gold as the mire of the streets. Behold, the Lord will cast her out and will smite her power in the sea and she shall be devoured with fire. Now that's judgment. That, that's judgment coming on several cities. Damascus, Zidon, Tyrus. These were cities that were pretty wealthy, cities that were uh, bordering the Mediterranean Sea. Now, notice verse number 4. And behold, the Lord will cast her out and smite her power in the sea and shall devour with fire. And Escalon, another city, shall see it and fear. Gaza, another city, also shall see it and be very sorrowful. And Ekron, another city. And her expectation shall be ashamed and the king shall perish from Gaza. And Escalon shall not be inhabited. And a bastard shall dwell in Ashdod, another city, and will be cut off the pride of the Philistines. So this is a Philistine city. And it will take away his blood out of his mouth and his abominations from between his teeth. But he that remaineth, even he shall be our God, and he shall be as a governor in Judah and Ekron as a Jebusite. And I will encamp about mine house because of the army, because of him that passeth by, and because of him that returneth. And no oppressor shall pass through them any more, nor, or for now, have I seen with mine eyes. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to preach for a few minutes this morning. I pray that you'll help us in Jesus' name. Amen. I just read to you the first eight verses of Zechariah chapter 9, dealing with the historical context of what has happened to these cities who are north of Jerusalem. He's basically saying in these cities, in, in, uh, whether it be Syrian cities, whether it be uh, cities that are Phoenician, or whether it be cities that belong to uh, the Philistines, these cities are uh, cities who will crumble. They are enemies of Jerusalem. And, and they're going to crumble in a certain way. All of them are going to crumble in a way by the same person. Now, if you study uh, the rise of Alexander the Great. Now, remember, I just said... Uh, there are four world powers that are predicted in Daniel chapter 2. I don't want to lose you, but Daniel chapter 2, it describes the image of the beast. It says that the image has a head of gold, a chest and arms of silver, belly and sides of bronze, and of course legs of iron. These are four major world powers. He also says in Daniel chapter 7 that there are four beasts that are mentioned. Again, he says it's a lion, a bear, a leopard, and a beast. He's referring to Babylon, the Medes and the Persians. This is where we are right now, the Medes and the Persians. He's referring to Greece, which will come on the scene under Alexander the Great. And then, of course, Rome. Rome will be the one that will overthrow Jerusalem in AD 70 and uh, as predicted by our Savior. Four major world powers. These are powers that will rise and they will conquer and one of the powers that we're speaking of right now that is predicted by Zechariah is the power of Greece. Greece was a world power. You can go in your history book. You can read about Alexander the Great. I want to show you, just for uh, your uh, mind, I guess you could say, uh, what this looked like under the reign of Alexander the Great. His conquering uh, over a lot of the eastern side of the world. If you would, show that map, if you would, fellas. Just kind of wake up back there. Here we go. So we got uh, a picture, wake up, right? Yeah, it's kind of warm. All right, so we got uh, Ale the Empire, Alexander the Great. We have in the darkened area, 
Uh, and that's my son, by the way, so wake up, Jake. And uh, so we have the darkened uh, area, which is, uh, of course, you got in the southern part, you got Arabia over here. All of the darkened area is or was conquered by Alexander the Great. Here's what I'm interested in. Uh, we don't have time. It's, it's a whole history lesson of how Alexander did it and when he did it on these other parts. But I'm not interested in that this morning because the Bible tells us in specifics who or what was, 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 uh, was conquered, starting with Issus. Issus is up here at the very top. Alexandria, Damascus, Tyre, Gaza, and all of these are mentioned in the text. These were the enemies of Jerusalem. So Alexander the Great takes a southward swing from Greece over here in the left corner, and he comes all the way down and conquers, headed toward Jerusalem. He takes out a lot of the cities that was in his way. I mean, we went and just read through in Zechariah 9, all of these cities, uh, Syrian cities, they, they tumble. Damascus in verses 1 and 2. Uh, Phoenician cities, Tyre in verses 2 uh, through verse 4. All of those cities are listed as, as ones that Alexander conquered. Matter of fact, the city of Tyre, just take an example, these were not small little towns that he would just roll through. These were cities that were fortified. Tyre is, and, and some of you that have a real thick southern accent, like myself, tar. Maybe that'll help you. Tar. I have a friend, a preacher friend, who it wouldn't be Tyre, it's tar. Tar had a tar, meaning a tower. So tar had a tower. You know, anyway. And uh, some of you are like, whoa, I didn't know. So, uh, we, have had, uh, we have a lot of northern uh, folks in here too, so they don't understand what tar. But it's in the Bible. Look at your Bible. <laughs> some of you pronounce like tire, tire, uh, or tiree. <laughs> Anyway, uh, that just went over some of your head. But anyway, Tar had, had walls that would be 150 feet high. That's 150, that's hard to imagine, but they had these rock walls. Their fortress was, was somewhere between 1,000 to 1,500 acres, 150, uh, 150 feet tall uh, walls. And then they, they had, uh, and it was about a half a mile in from the, the water, the, the uh, Mediterranean Sea. So very uh, fortified. And, and the Assyrian armies tried to go up against Tyre, could not do it. The Babylonians tried to rise up against the city of Tyre, could not do it. But it only took Alexander the Great five months to conquer this great city. Five months. That ought to show you the power that Alexander the Great had. He was a mastermind. Some say that that was the greatest, uh, that was the greatest military act or one of the greatest military acts that has ever happened under Alexander the Great was when he defeated Tyre. You know what's amazing about all of this? Even the, even the, the Philistine cities. I mean, the Philistine cities like uh, Ascalon. You see that right here. Ascalon in verses 5 through verse number 8. Uh, there's Gaza. There's another city called Ekron. Another city called Ashdod. All of these belong to the Philistines. And all of those cities crumbled. But there was one city, talking about the preservation of his people, the past preservation of his people, there was one city that did not crumble under the uh, reign of Alexander the Great, and that was Jerusalem. 
And the reason is found in verse number 8. Look at Zechariah chapter 9 and verse number 8. And I will encamp mine house because of the army, because of him that passeth by. He's talking about uh, Alexander the Great. He passed by the city of, of Jerusalem. And because of him that returneth, he came by again after he defeated the ones in the lower part. He said, I, I, and no oppressor shall pass through them anymore, for now have I seen my, with mine eyes. Meaning that the Lord has promised to preserve His people in the past. Now this is, this is again, a conquering thing. Now there are some uh, historians that say that, that Alexander the Great did visit Jerusalem and, and uh, there's a really neat story, I think, by Josephus that we're not really sure, uh, you can't take it because it's not in the Bible, but, but it is kind of history that, that Alexander the Great did approach Jerusalem and when he did, the high priests were in their garments and everybody in the city was dressed in white and, uh, and Alexander the Great, instead of conquering the city, he bowed and his army was taken back by his obeisance toward the priest and, and he, he bowed and even offered a sacrifice and then left and never returned. So we're not sure if that actually is true or not, but we know that he did not because I believe God has preserved his people. Can I just say this this morning in defense of our Jewish friends and God's people? He is still defending the Jews today. Amen? Whether it be the 1967 war, the Six-Day War, uh, whether it be today in the attacks that happened on October the 7th and, and the people that came in unexpected and murdered and tortured people. Hey, can I tell you, God is still protecting His people. And by the way, God's not through with Israel. God's not through with them. He has a plan for them, just like He, of course, He has a plan for us. So it's a past preservation. We see that God protected Jerusalem during the time of Alexander the Great. But then I want you to notice that it shifts just a little bit in verse number 9. We see another great conqueror come on that Zechariah brings to our attention. Oh, it's not an earthly conqueror like Alexander the Great or like Hannibal or like some other conqueror on this earth. Verse 9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughters of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem, because thy king cometh unto thee, and he is just. And having salvation, lowly, riding upon an ass, and upon the colt of the foal of an ass. He is riding on a donkey, and the Bible even specifies what kind of donkey it is. It's a, it is a young donkey. I want you to notice this is the first time our Savior comes to earth. This is his triumphal entry that, that Zechariah now shifts gears from, from Alexander the Great. He shifts gears now to Jesus in John chapter 12. Jesus comes on a donkey. You remember uh, we preached through the gospel of John uh, not really long ago. And he comes in John chapter 12 on the, the feast of the Passover. He's riding a donkey. Now think about this for a second. What is so important about a donkey? Well, we're seeing it prophesied in Zechariah chapter 9. So that's a prophecy that is being fulfilled. First of all, it goes to show that, that whatever's in the Bible, you can take it to the bank. It's true. Amen? But then secondly, it shows the humility and the lowliness of our Savior. 
Alexander the Great conquered. He rode a great stallion. Boy, when you seen Alexander's horse, you, it said warrior. It said fighter. It said conqueror. But when you see Jesus on a donkey, it doesn't say warrior, conqueror. It says humble, lowly. Why? Because Jesus did not come to this earth to fight a battle for us. As far as conquering Rome or conquering Greece, Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. He came one way. His first advent, uh, Messiah enters Jerusalem according to all four Gospels, by the way. Not on a charging horse, but on a donkey. Uh, the animal of peace is what we see in our text. And thus, it is appropriate for Christ to ride into Jerusalem. Remember on Palm Sunday, which we celebrate, uh, when they're crying, Hosanna, Hosanna. They thought, here's what the, the people thought, that Jesus was come to deliver them from Rome. Do you remember that? They thought that their Messiah now has come and that the Messiah is going to deliver them from Roman rule. That's not what Jesus came to do. He came to deliver them from Satan's rule. He came to deliver them from hell. And you know what? When they found that out, they rejected that. They wanted a conqueror like Alexander. They wanted a conqueror like others. But guess what? Jesus came to conquer death, hell, and the grave. And the donkey, it's shown as a stubborn animal. And it, by the way, we know as donkeys today, very stubborn. And a lot of times farmers will have a donkey in the field to keep away coyotes and keep away other things and kind of keep everything in line. A donkey is very defensive, but a donkey is also very stubborn. In the East, they were remarkable for patience and gentleness and intelligence and meek and submission, great power and even endurance. Jesus came to bring about salvation. Jesus came to bring about peace. Jesus came about, about to, to, though He didn't bring peace because it actually divided. And we understand that, that because Jesus was on the earth, He was hated and it did divide families. It divided all kinds. But Jesus did not come to make war with anybody. Jesus came to bring peace. Lowly, riding on a donkey. Jesus was different. Think about it. Jesus was different. Everywhere he went, he was different. A conqueror would have rode around on a big stallion and announced his arrival. And you would have had trumpets and you would have had banners and you would have had people that are announcing. Not Jesus. Even, even some of the famous horses in history. Think about it. Uh, Bocephalus was the name of Alexander the Great's horse, and he would actually have a bed for Bocephalus, and he brought it in. They never, it never stayed outside. It was brought in. He fed it meals. I mean, it was treated better than some humans in his kingdom because it was his horse. I think about uh, other great uh, horses in history, and you would think we would know Jesus's horse's name. I mean, we would think that it would be some kind of, oh, yeah, the horse, but no, it was just a lowly donkey. Because he came to bring salvation. Now I want you to notice something in verse 10. Now verse 9 is his first advent. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. He was kind of obscured until the age of 30 years old. And he then comes on the scene baptized by John. His ministry uh, 
just catapults off of that, and he starts healing the sick, raising the dead. He starts making the blind to see. He's preaching uh, the kingdom of God. He's preaching the death on the cross. He's preaching the resurrection. Nobody quite understands what he's doing. And then when he dies, he ascends back to the Father, and now we're in verse 10. All right, so somewhere in between verse 9 and 10, here we are. That's a pretty big gap, isn't it? At least 2,000 years. So somewhere between verse 9 and 10, the church age takes place, right? I mean, Jesus goes back to uh, heaven, and then he says, but I'm going to leave you a comforter. And then we know Acts chapter 1 takes place, Acts chapter 2. We know that Pentecost takes place, and 3,000 souls were saved. And, bab- and then the church explodes, and, and, and it just grew and magnified. And here we are today, all right? Well, then the rapture will take place, and I do believe the rapture of the church, amen? I believe that the rapture will usher in the tribulation period. Now, you say, well, Pastor, I, I'd like to talk to you after the service. I believe in this mid-trib and all that. Well, we can talk about all that later. But understand, I don't believe that we're going to be here for the wrath of God being poured out. I just don't believe that. And I'm going to tell you in just a moment uh, some things prophetically that I, I believe that Zechariah is even showing us then. But we're seeing in verse 10, just going back to that, he said, and I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim. Now, this is, a, this, is, this is in the millennial reign. And the horse from Jerusalem and the battle, the second coming, shall uh, battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace unto the heathen. That's going to be a time of peace. Now, notice what else. And his dominion shall be from the sea, even to the sea, and from the river, even to the ends of the earth. He shall reign, and there'll be no end, there'll be no boundary. The Lord himself will rule from Jerusalem and from the river to the sea and from all the boundaries from one end of the earth to the other will be his kingdom. And by the way, we'll rule and reign with him. Amen. So the song y'all just sung a minute ago that I just, I was just, uh, oh, we've sung it a couple times today and every service was just, you could just sense the love and the, and the worship of behold our God uh, seated on his throne. Hey, one day we're going to witness that. Come let us adore him. Right now this world is scoffing and right now this world is mocking and right now this world doesn't believe it. But can I tell you, at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. One day they may scoff today, but one day I'm going to tell you, every knee will bow. And by the way, that's our knees too. And we just might as well get in practice already. Amen. Every heart will confess, every mouth will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Can you understand this? That our Savior is going to rule and reign, as you just sung, forever and forever. And we see that in verse number 10. Even from the sea to the sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Now look at verse 11. And as for thee also, now he's talking to Israel. By the blood of thy covenant that I have sent forth thy prisoners. Now here, stay with me, church. He's referring to Israel as prisoners out of the pit wherein is no water. He's talking about the future preservation of his people. I am going to come, I'm going to bring peace, I'm going to defeat the foes, I'm going to conquer, I'm going to do all these things for my people. But as for you, Israel, 
I'm going to deliver you up like a prisoner out of a pit. Now think about this for just a second. Israel has been in bondage. Israel has been running from God. They had been a rebellious people. For They were still God's people and they still are God's people, but they just chose to do it the hard way. And then they fall into the Babylonian captivity, not, not long before this. And so they have been prisoners. They have been, you know, God's uh, original intention for his people was not to be prisoners, but to be free. Y'all remember going all the way back to Exodus? He delivered them from Pharaoh and he had a promised land for them and he wants to bless them and he said, I'll be the king over you. It was never God's will that anyone lord over his people. He would be the king, but they said, no, we want a king and they never would listen. They never would. So they hardened their necks and they hardened their hearts and they, they just did their own thing. And really the story of Israel was just mistake after mistake after mistake. An occasional victory here and there, but a mistake. And Jesus calls them, or, or the Lord calls them prisoners. But then notice what he says in verse 12. He said, I'll bring you as a prisoner out of the pit wherein no water. But he said, turn to the stronghold. Turn you to the stronghold. Notice the phrase, ye prisoners of hope. He now calls them He said in verse 11, they're prisoners without water, but now he calls them in verse 12, prisoners of hope. Or we could translate that prisoners of the hope. Well, where is is their hope? Their hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, church, our hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is where our hope lies. That is where our hope stands. That is where we put our trust in the Lord. And so he's a prisoner. Israel is the prisoner of hope. uh, The hope of Israel. The Lord himself. And all believers, here's what I believe this church, don't miss this. I believe all believers are prisoners of hope. I really do. I've met people that are prisoners to, to, to debt, to fear. They're prisoners to uh, they're prisoners to all kinds of things. Prisoners in their own mind. People that are just living in guilt of what they did years ago. Every now and then, one of the pictures of that old life will will uh, kind of flash up, and we know where that comes from. But one of those old pictures, and guess what? You become a prisoner to what you used to be. Guess what? We ought to do. We ought to run to the stronghold. Amen. We ought to take that to the stronghold and say, Lord, I I can't be a prisoner in my own mind. I can't be a prisoner without hope because it is a, he calls them prisoners of hope. He said, what do we do when we find ourselves in prisons and in pits? We run to the stronghold. That's what he says in verse 12. Turn you to the stronghold. That means a fortress. My mighty fortress is our God. A mighty fortress is our God. Hey, when we are attacked, what do we do? We run to the fortress. We run to the Lord Jesus Christ. And then here's what he says in that latter part of verse 12. He says, and even today do I declare that, meaning, uh, meaning uh, uh, the day of the Lord, I declare that I will render double unto Thee. If you were to go over to Isaiah chapter 61, talking about that millennial reign, he said, instead of your shame, you will have double honor. And instead of confusion, they shall rejoice in their portion. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess double. 
That, the meaning, that is a double portion. He said, I'm going to give them all the things that they could have had, but he said, I'm going to restore to them a double. By the way, isn't that a good God? That is a, that is a promise. Render us double. And then look at verse 13. You're doing good. Verse 13, when I have bent Judah for me, filled the bow with Ephraim, and raised up thy sons, O Zion, against thy sons, O Greece, and made thee as the sword of a mighty man. Now that's an interesting verse. He goes into specifics. He starts naming these, uh, these mighty powers, Greece, sons of Greece. And then he, he's talking about the, even the descendants of Alexander the Great. I, I don't have time to get into some of the descendants, but there is one who uh, was a ruler by the name of Antiochus IV. Antiochus IV was, and nobody, maybe historians would know a little better than I, I'm sure, but we're not clear on why Antiochus actually attacked uh, Israel in, in, in 167 B.C. But when he did, being a Greek, you know, the Hellenist, there was already influenced heavily by the Greek. When he did, they stopped all the sacrifices. They stopped all of the, all of the uh, Jewish rituals. They stopped the Sabbath, celebrating the Sabbath. They stopped all of the things. And he went into the temple and he desecrated the temple. He took a pig inside the temple and cut it and uh, put pig blood everywhere. And he went and desecrated the Holy of Holies and where they or the mercy seat and all the things there and just desecrated the temple. Here's what I believe. I believe that's exactly what Daniel is speaking of, the abomination, uh, abomination of desolations in Daniel chapter 7 through chapter 12. Referring to defiling the temple and this man's going to come, this prince is going to come and he is going to defile the temple. Thus, Judas Maccabee, he rises up with some others and they have a revolt called the Maccabean Revolt and they come and they, they take over one of the greatest things in history uh, as far as for the Jewish. They celebrate the Maccabean Revolt. They, they revolt against the uh, uh, Antiochus and his men and they overtake and get back Jerusalem and restore the temple and all these things and that's why they celebrate Hanukkah on December the 25th because all that happened on December the 25th and they celebrate that uh, today. I believe in verse number 13, when he describes Ephraim and Judah, and he, he describes to them as a, as a bow, a weapon. He says, Judah is my bow. And then he, he and Ephraim, when he said it's uh, in verse 13, when I have bent Judah for me and filled my bow with Ephraim, so he describes it really, if you go down to verse 14, he describes an arrow. And then he describes a sword in verse 13. He's describing a bow, an arrow, and a sword. He's saying, I am going to use you, Israel, to defeat the enemies of God. Now, I also think, church, this is very interesting, but I also think that verse 13 is a picture of the Antichrist. Because the Antichrist is going to come, and here's what Antiochus' name means. It means God manifest. Well, I find that interesting because the Antichrist is going to come, and he's going to say, I am Christ. And people, guess what people are going to do? People are going to believe that that is the Christ. There's going to be a great deception fall 
And you may be in here today and not know Jesus as your Savior. Can I just say, don't you hold out and don't you wait and don't you delay. And you say, well, when the rapture takes place, I'll just get saved when everything else reveals itself. No, no, no. There's going to be a great deception fall. I believe people are just going to believe a lie. Because the Antichrist, when he comes, he's not going to do wicked things at first. He's actually going to do good things. And people's going to say, man, dude, we've not had it like this. I mean, peace. Boy, I tell you what, anybody right now that comes and runs on the ticket for peace may get elected. Because we had not had peace in a long time. And I'm talking about world peace. I'm talking about peace. That So this man is going to come. Now, Antiochus, he was a dictator. He, he was one that was cruel and, and he ravaged a lot until he was overthrown. Now, look at verse 14 and we're almost through. I want you to notice verse 14. The Bible says this, And the Lord shall be seen over them. And his arrow shall go forth as lightning, and the Lord shall blow the trumpet, and it shall go with the whirlwinds of the south. Now notice the first phrase of verse 15. The Lord of hosts shall defend them. So the first phrase of verse 14 says, The Lord shall be seen over them. The first phrase of verse 15 says, The Lord of hosts shall defend them. And then verse 16 says, And the Lord their God shall save them them. You see what the Lord is doing. The Lord is saving them. The Lord is defending them. And the Lord is seeing over them. By the way, this is a great prayer to pray for our troops. If you want to just read a prayer in the Bible and pray it over our current troops, understanding that this was dealing with Israel, but, but boy, Lord, would you see over them? Lord, would you defend them? Lord, would you save them? You think about it. The Lord will save them. And then he says in verse 16, look at it. And the Lord their God shall save them in that day, being the future, this is the future battle, as the flock of his people, comparing them to sheep, Scattered sheep, for they shall be as the stones of a crown. So he's describing Israel, and I believe believers can be lumped into this. All of us who claim the Lord God as our Savior and we worship Jehovah. Now think, he said, all of you are going to be as stones on a crown or jewels on a crown. But I love the last phrase of verse 16. Lifted up as an ensign or insignia. Upon his land. That word ensign means a signal, a sign, a token, or an emblem. Here's what the Lord's going to do. He's going to say, what my power has done, and what I have done to all the enemies of God, and all the enemies of Israel, he said, I am going to use that as a jewel on the crown, and it's going to be an emblem to everybody else. You know what that tells me? It's important as a believer that we let our light shine even now because what we are today to this world is an insignia of His power. Bible Baptist, it's an insignia of His power, the blessings of God. It's an insignia of His power when we come together and we worship the Lord. It's an insignia of His power when we leave this place and we go out into our community and talk about Jesus and spread the good news of the Lord. Listen, we shouldn't let our candle be under a bushel. We shouldn't let uh, our light on a hill be hid. We should be as a jewel in a crown. Why do you put jewels in a crown so everybody can see it? Amen. 
That's what he says Israel's going to be in that last day. Thou shalt be as stones of a crown lifted up as an ensign upon his land. And here's how good it's going to be. We find that in verse 17. For how great is his goodness. Church, can we say amen there? How great is his goodness. I had the uh, usher team or the parking lot guys and the usher team uh, came up to me after the first service and, and at the start of the second. And they said, uh, Pastor, there's nowhere to sit and there's nowhere to park. Now, that can be a problem, and it is a problem. Those of you that are visiting, we, we have a lot of plans this year. I shared that a couple weeks ago. If you want to go back on one of the things and listen to it, we've got a plan. We're looking forward to having many places to, to, to uh, park, and, and uh, we're, we're uh, looking forward to that. And here this year is going to be one of the major accomplishes, uh, accomplishments of uh, the of God first, but then the church. We're gonna we're just gonna be thrilled when we have all that. You're not gonna be parking on gravel. You're not gonna be uh, parking in grass. We we're beyond gravel now. Amen. Those of you that park on gravel, that's actually a blessing. Uh, those of you that are in the grass, I'm sorry. And at least it's dry out there today. But uh, we're gonna have all that rectified and 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 just looking forward to that. And then one day, I think very soon, I really do. We're gonna have a building big enough to have everybody in it at one time. Now, that's been a prayer. We bought this place. We Listen, we bought this place. We thought, man, it's going to take some work to fill it up. And here we got we got just as many people really coming in that first service, uh, just about as many coming in the first service as we do the second. We don't have place to put people. And I looked inside the overflow just a minute ago, and it's completely full in the overflow. You say, Pastor, what are you going to do? Well, here's what I'm going to do. Instead of complaining, I'm just going to say, how great is thy goodness? Because here's the deal, we could be taking seats out and selling them to other churches saying, you know what, we don't need these anymore. But praise be to God for His goodness. Now, they're going to look over this vast, in this, uh, in this millennial age, and they're going to say, praise God for His goodness. But I'm going to say, we don't have to wait till the millennial age. We can praise God for His goodness now. Just look down that row of people beside you, and you can say, boy, God, you've been so good. Just look, you say, well, Pastor, my bank account don't reveal it. Well, let's join the club. But that's not what we base his goodness on, our bank account. Because if that's the case, most of us would be going, well, he's, you know, no, he used to be good until I had kids. No, no, no. We don't base his goodness on our circumstances. We base his goodness on him being God. Because that's what he is. It's not our circumstances. And then it says, how great is His beauty. Boy, I love that verse. How great is His beauty. Corn shall make the young men cheerful. This is during this age. And new wine the maids. Listen, there's going to be things and the goodness of God's going to blow everybody's mind during this age of how well and how plentiful and how wonderful He is to us. Now, if Zechariah chapter 9 doesn't bless your heart, And we're looking forward to what the Lord is doing. Zechariah was looking forward to even some of these events. We're looking forward to the coming of the Lord. We've seen what God done. We're looking back at the goodness of God. We're looking back at Jesus riding in on a donkey. We're looking back at His humility and His lowliness. But we're also looking forward to His return. And when He comes, 
we'll see him in his goodness. The first time he came, he came as a lamb. The second time he comes, he's coming as a lion to rule and to reign forever and ever. Churches ought to make you excited because CNN does not predict the outcome. Fox News doesn't predict the outcome. No politician. God uses history. Oh, yeah. He used Alexander the Great to usher in Jesus. He used all those people to bring about rule. But can I tell you something? Listen, God is in control of everything. You say, what about the God's in control of everything? Let's close our eyes and bow our heads this morning. As we reflect on the goodness of God, as we reflect on salvation, as we reflect on lowliness and humility, as we reflect on the power of God to conquer foes, may I just say this. Maybe today you have never trusted Christ as your personal Savior. Today would be a great day. But you must come to Him as He came to us. You must come to Him as He come to us. You say, well, how is that? He came to us lowly and humble. No one has ever came to Christ in their pride. If they did, that's not salvation. We can't come to Christ in pride. We come to Christ broken, humble, in need of a Savior. Why? Because Jesus came to us that way. Though He was a king, He humbled Himself and came. If you're in here today and you don't know Christ, today would be a great day to believe the gospel. Trust that same Jesus who shed His blood for you on the cross of Calvary, who died and was rose, and, uh, rose again on the third day. Trust that same Jesus to be your Savior. Who would say this, Pastor, I've already done that. I've already called upon Jesus to save my soul. Would you raise your hand this morning? I know I'm a saved Christian. I'm saved. Praise the Lord. You can lower your hands. That's wonderful. Wonderful. Beautiful sight. But there may be some of you in here that was honest, and I appreciate that. You were honest and you said, Pastor, I I cannot raise my hand knowing 100% that I am saved by God's grace. I appreciate your honesty. But would you let me pray for you? You would say, Pastor, I'm not 100% sure I know Jesus Christ is my Savior. Pray for me. I would love to pray for you. I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to call you out, make you stand up or nothing. I just want to pray for you. If you'd slip your hand up and say, Pastor, pray for me. I'm not sure that I'm saved. Would you raise a hand this morning? Just say, Pastor, pray for me. I'm not sure that I know Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. One day... I'll preach my final message. One day I will we'll have our final service as a church family because one day we'll be with Jesus. Now, we don't know when that day is, so make sure you're ready. Make sure you're ready. By that, I'll take it that everyone in here, or at least most of us in here, know Jesus Christ as our Savior, and we're ready for His return. My final question then would be this. Do you see the Lord in His goodness? He's been good to us. He's been gracious to us. Do you see the Lord in Zechariah chapter 9? Hundreds of years before He came to earth, do you see the prophecies being fulfilled? Do you see this book as a living, true, literal, without any error, inspired Word of God? Trust it today. 
He's coming. And when He comes, we will be with the Lord Jesus Christ and reign with Him forever. But until that day, let's let our light shine. Let's be humble. Let's be mindful of that.